Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. So thrilled that you've joined us to continue our study in Luke's gospel. Before we get there, I want to ask you guys, um, how many of you uh, were able to go to the, uh, the musical Wicked? Anybody saw Wicked? Awesome. You know, it's, Christians shouldn't really admit to that, to seeing a musical named Wicked, but, you know, so be it. And then how many of you have seen the recent uh, Disney film, Cruella? Anybody seen Cruella? All right, Disney fans and theater fans. We're mixed back here. How about some of the uh, Star Wars fans here? Um, okay, okay. Uh, any, have you seen the prequels, the trilogy um, that gave you the back story, like, um, I don't know, these have to look at them, Phantom Menace, seen that? How about Attack of the Clones? And then what's the other prequel? Revenge of the Sith. Man, (laughs) a true Star Wars fan, I never knew that about you. Oh, you were Googling it right away? Okay, that's cheating. So all of these are prequels. They're the story before the story, or the backstory. And so Luke, after his preface, he begins his narrative of the life of Jesus with this prequel. Two birth announcements, and Jesus's isn't the first. And this is part of what, as we talked about last week, makes Luke so unique, and to me, and hopefully to you, interesting. It's the backstory. If you're just joining us, we're in what we're calling a calendared study of Luke. So we're going to study Luke from Christmas to Easter, from the birth of Christ to the resurrection. And last week, uh, we looked at this preface. We just kind of like introduced the idea of Luke. And we saw that Luke is the most prolific writer in the New Testament by volume. How much, between Luke and Acts, how much, do you guys remember, how much uh, yeah, 33% of your New Testament is written by Luke, a Gentile. And he said about what he wrote that he carefully investigated these things and he compiled an account, an organized account for somebody named Theophilus. Yeah, say that three times fast. For the purpose, yeah, thank you, <laughs> for the purpose of um, giving certainty to what we speculate is a friend of his named, uh, you know, Theophilus. He wanted him to be certain. So we also saw that um, nearly one-third of Luke is unique in comparison to all the other Gospels, and these birth announcements are unique passages. To uh, it's, Only Luke tells us, these stories, and the first one isn't Jesus. So we have two birth announcements to cover today, and then kind of like I'm going to gather it all together under our narrative question. So the first birth announcement is John the Baptist. These are going to be really easy fill-ins. 
You can probably even look ahead. So Luke begins his biography of Jesus with this detailed account of an elderly couple who've never been able to have children. And they've, so they've struggled with infertility their, their entire lives. But through God's intervention, uh, we'll see that they become parents in their later years of a very well-known person in your New Testament, John the Baptist. So meet Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a Jewish priest, and he's been serving in the temple. And as he's doing so, the angel Gabriel appears to tell him that they will, he and uh, Elizabeth will be blessed with a child. And in verse 5 of Luke 1, we're told Zechariah belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So Elizabeth is a descendant of Aaron and Zechariah of Abijah. Why is that important? Because they both come from a priestly line. So a priest could marry anyone, but it's especially commendable if he gets to marry within the priestly line. So both uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth have married well, as we would say. They're a priestly family. They're a power couple. And they're really, really good people. Even by the high standards of Judaism, in verse 6, it's, uh, Luke says that both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So you have this combination of two lives, two hearts, two kind of like pedigreed people who come together and they follow hard after God. They're involved in what we would call full-time ministry today, and they're doing it well. They're a match made in heaven. But in verse 7, they're both childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. And you, many of you probably already know this, but to be childless in the first century was to be like to consider yourself cursed by God. That's not theological, but it is cultural. And so now they're old. They're very old. And so they're beyond hope in this area of their lives. So here they are in God's work. They're truly righteous. They've given themselves wholeheartedly to God, and yet culturally there's this gap for them. And a little background after, after this background on the couple, Luke now skips to Zechariah's at work. And if we could title a section, like a great title for this part of Luke's gospel would be, you know, honey, a funny thing happened at work today. Because in the context, let me give you a little more background. In the context of a priest in the first century as part of Judaism, there, there are probably about 18,000 priests total. And they've been broken into 24 divisions. And First Chronicles talks about this. And Abijah um, is part of the eighth group. So each, each group of priests you know, is given a number. You're, you're, you're team one, team two. And so Abijah is on team, priest team eight. That was like a little reference to the seals. But you guys, that just went right over you. So uh, sometimes I'm so ahead of everybody that <laughs> it takes you a while to catch up. So that, when it was your time, when priest team eight was up, 
um, he would go to the temple in Jerusalem for two weeks. And in verse 8, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So what Luke is saying, it's like, like this is a once-in-a-lifetime uh, event for any priest because they, even though they had their time to serve, they were chosen randomly to go and light the incense at the temple. So it's this holy and sacred job that has all these mundane aspects of it. I find this really interesting. You know, it's like this is something that if you were a priest, you were like, you would be honored to be chosen for this little task. But it basically involves setting up the room and removing the old ashes and lighting the incense. And it would happen in the morning, in the evening, and we don't know exactly when this happened. So Zechariah, the picture we have, is like he goes in there and does all these mundane things, and then he lights the incense, and he falls on his knees in prayer. And as there are people gathered outside from this room, they see the smoke go up. And that the smoke from the incense kind of symbolizes their prayers. As they pray on the outside, they have this this picture, this imagery of their prayers rising to God. And so for Zechariah, it's just kind of an ordinary work day, but something special is happening on this day. And uh, in verse 11, while he's doing this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And remember we talked about how Luke investigated all these things. And so this is, I, like, I can't help but have my mind go there, maybe yours is going there, but like, how did Luke kind of find these stories out? You know, and I love these, like, I love podcasts or movies that do that, you know. Some of my favorite podcasts are Dirty John, don't be, like, you should, that's a great one. Um, The Line, which is about the SEAL team, or Serial, Revisionist History, How I Built This. I just finished uh, one called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And these are all stories that, like, if you, if you just knew what the story was about, you would say, oh, yeah, I know that story, but there's a backstory, and somebody digs all that out. So this is kind of like the first backstory podcast that ever happened, only it was in the first century. And uh, so he's reconstructing and reviewing and evaluating and putting this story together to explain it to Theophilus. And... Uh, In verse 12, when Zechariah sees the angel, he's startled and gripped with fear. Yeah. And then it gets even scarier. The angel said to him, don't be afraid. That's the wasted breath, right? Zechariah, your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. So it's bad enough that an angel shocks him with his appearance, but he also learns that this angel's been eavesdropping on his prayers, and he tells him, you're going you're gonna to have a son, and you're going to name him John. Now, now, remember that Zechariah is very old. And being in that grandparent phase of life, I'm, I love my grandkids, but I get exhausted. Amen. Amen. Thank you, grandparents. And I'm not very old. I'm just old. No comments, please, from the audience. And, and, um, 
And then Luke, or the angel says to him, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. And I think that Zechariah and Elizabeth might have needed this reminder often, because I picture John the Baptist being a really difficult child. I mean, first of all, he has a special diet. He's unruly, he's outspoken, he's opinionated, and it, would, it had to be hard to dress him for school because you can imagine, like, JB, what is with you in the animal skin outfits you have to have on every, every day to go to school? Preacher jokes. <laughs> but uh, in spite of this, this is just an amazing thing for Zachariah and Elizabeth. We can't even really, like, like fully comprehend how crazy this is to them. Not only are they... They're no longer going to be childless. They're going to end their lives with this special son. And he's going to be great in God's sight. And he's, he's set apart. It's like he has a, a, like a spiritual bent. From birth, he takes a Nazarite vow. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to be like a great prophet, like Elijah, who's revered a hero in Judaism. He's going to prepare the way, as Bob read Today, like the, the prophet Isaiah talked about, and he did as well. And he's going to turn people back to God, the angel says. I mean, if an angel could appear to you before the birth of your child, and they said all these things. I mean, it would be hard for you to culturally connect, but like, just the idea that your child would be someone who turns people to God. Every Christian isn't that our prayer? I mean, we want our kids to be, you know, smart and good looking and not take drugs and hopefully they're an athlete and they're successful in life and they get married and they give us grandkids. There's all these, you know, we all have these different expectations. But for Zechariah and Elizabeth, this is an incredible promise. Incredible. And Zechariah's response to this amazing news is, he asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. So Zechariah says, you know, are, are you sure? I mean, you said you're Gabriel. You sure you're not Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life? And then I, I wonder if Luke didn't just clean this up. Notice he says, I'm an old man, but my wife is well along in years. Nice polished job on that. <laughs> in verse 19, the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. So he just says, you can know it because I'm Gabriel. I'm the same angel that appeared to Daniel. And if I tell you it, it should be good enough. And then uh, Gabriel says to Zechariah, now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which, came, which will come true at their appointed time. Now, basically Gabriel says to him, you know, you're, you're struggling with this, but I, here's what I want you to know about it. You just, it's going to happen even though you don't believe it because God is faithful. So you just sit back and be quiet for a while and watch God work. 
And I can see Luke getting this part of the story too. Meanwhile, remember, all the people outside are waiting. They're praying, and it's taking extra long in there today. The people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. So the, the scenario here is that, you know, they're praying outside, and like they're kind of waiting for the close to the service. You know, where's the guy that's inside? Where's the priest? Gonna, he's going to come out. And uh, they figure it out eventually. But at first they're going like, what's wrong with this guy? Can't even talk. And then what's so remarkable to me is the day ends kind of like every other day. Uh, Verse 23, when his time of service was completed, he went home. Yeah. Uh, Verse 24, after this his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. Quite a different response, right? In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So this is a moment in their lives. It's, uh, they're back to normal life after this occurrence, but it's a different life after this event. Announcement two is Jesus. Yeah, you guys are reading ahead. And that starts in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So a Jewish betrothal involved basically two steps, kind of like a contract, an agreement on price of the bride, and then about a year later, a wedding. And even though Mary's age isn't given here, typically in the first century, she could be as young as 12 years old. And in verse 28, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And, you know, because of this, because of this statement, some traditions revere Mary almost to the level of Jesus. But I I don't think that that's the intent. But we do need to step back and recognize how favored this young woman is. In verse 29, she's greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You've found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. And so in this, like, kind of like, knock you back on your heels news, which is both amazing and scary, Luke describes her with two words. She is both troubled and wondering. God God is on the verge of moving in her life in a miraculous way, and she has this human response. She's both troubled and then wondering. Are Are you promising me a child with Joseph? What, what is it that you're saying? And, and often, isn't it true that when God does something in our lives or we feel a call or something changes in our lives, aren't we often both a little troubled and a little wondering? It's like it's good news and bad news in a way. A little more, the angel tells him about this child to be born. He will be great. He will be called the son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, 
and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. This is huge. You know, to a Jew in the first century, their history was so important to how they viewed the world. Um, and, and every Jew in the first century under the thumb of the Roman Empire held on to this promise that one day David or a David-like character would arrive on the scene and he would restore what they had in the past. And Mary is told by the, saint, by the angel Gabriel, your son will do this. And in verse 34, she asks, well, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, you know, I, it's like the human body is a miracle in itself, right? And then birth is like at a whole other level. I, I mean, I know the biology of it. And I know how science explains it, but do we really know how that happens? Her body is going to be intimately involved in this miraculous birth to bring the Son of God into the world. But Mary's question is more than a biological question. Because even if they have a child, in her mind, he could not be the one he can't be the one because she and Joseph are nobodies. They're not royalty or anyone important. It's a whole nother level of impossibility. It'd be like if an angel appeared to you and said, you know, hey, I have great news for you. You're going to be the future heir of Nabisco. And you're like, well, but I, no one in my family has the last name of Nabisco. So this is impossible. This is kind of the level it's at. And Gabriel's answer is really simple here. It will be the Holy Spirit. And I know that that doesn't explain everything because you're not going to understand that. It's God. And every once in a while, God does a thing that is totally unexplainable. So I can't sit here and unpack this. But I know that the longer I'm a Christian, sometimes I have to be comfortable with something that God does that I cannot explain. A reality for which there's not a human answer in some things, whether it's trust in the future or a thing in my present or something that God has dealt with from my past, it is uh, accepted because I have faith. Now, then the angel clues Mary in on her cousin in verse 38. Uh, even Elizabeth, your relative, that's uh, the best. People smarter than I can figure out that she's likely a cousin is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. Maybe your Bible says uh, with God, nothing is impossible. Now, do you think that Mary understood everything that's going on? Remember, she's somewhere between 12 and 14. There's no way that she could. So she doesn't fully comprehend everything that's being said, but what is her response? In verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. 
May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So Luke, after introducing how he wrote his gospel, he starts off with two prequels, two birth announcements to the stories that all of us know. Most of us know about John the Baptist and we know about Jesus, but here is the backstory, and Luke gives us these details that only appear in his gospel. And in summary, you have God uh, intervening in two women's lives with the same result, which is pregnancy, but under entirely different circumstances and means. One has been longing for it her entire life. The other, it's not even a thought of possibility. One has prayed for it for a long time, likely, and the other isn't quite ready for it. One is through unlikely but natural events, and the other is an act of God through his Holy Spirit. One is old, and one is young. One child will prepare the way, and the other is the way and will reign forever. One occurs at the center of Israel's culture at the temple, and the other occurs in an obscure Galilean village. And one, in one, the angel's appearance is to a man, and in the other is to a woman. So that's our birth announcements. And last week, if you weren't here, we said that what we're gonna do is process these narratives with five questions. Here they are. They're going to be up on the screen. Why do you think this was important enough for Luke to write this down? These are things that we are encouraging you to think about and that those of us who are teaching are thinking through the text. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about people? What does this tell us about the central story of Jesus and his resurrection? And what do we learn about following Jesus? A lot to consider, right? And we only have a little time left for which you're grateful, I know that. Today I want to ask this question. What do we learn about God? I think what we learn about God is the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. Those words aren't original with me. An upside-down kingdom, what do I mean about that? Well, what do you think about when you think about a kingdom or a king? I think about authority and power and rule, and dominance, and riches, and treasure, and force. Luke reveals something, though, about God, about who God is, and the nature of our relationship with him, and who we're called to be. Luke is revealing that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Remember, once Jesus was talking to his disciples, and they were arguing about who is great, and he said, you know, this is the way the world works. People who have power use it and lord it over people. And he makes this simple statement, not so among you. It's totally different for the believer. Of course, God is all-powerful. He has all authority. He has unlimited resources. But that's not what Luke emphasizes in how he tells us the story, the coming of the Christ child. For instance, see the humble manner in which the Son of God comes into the world. On Christmas Eve, we're going to 
look at the story that most of you know, the son of God born in a stable without big fanfare or big announcements or parades. And really, the only people that get to witness it are those who are truly looking for it. So if you were sending the son of God into the world to announce a new kingdom being established on earth, how would you do it? Here, God from the very beginning has a son born to a woman from a backwater town called Galilee. It's an agrarian region, so it's just all farmers. Probably her father is a farmer. It's not a central city or a region that is influential. It's kind of like out in the sticks. And even Jesus, during his ministry, when he starts to become known, people say of him, you know, who, who is this guy? And uh, some say Messiah, but others say, that's impossible. How can the Messiah come from Galilee? It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous thought. So Luke is telling us that the son of God's mother is an unknown girl from a poor region in an unextraordinary family and situation. It's just not the way we would, a human being, any of us would write the script of the coming of the Son of God. There's no greatness involved here, and Jesus comes into the world through humble beginnings. And I think there's something for us to learn about God in this moment. The humble beginnings of the Messiah, then, are, they have to be an intentional act of God. And if the Gospels are written to reveal Jesus, we need to really pay attention to what Luke is explicitly telling us, but also what he's saying implicitly. The way the people of the first century would read this account. God is the creator of all things, an unmatched being, yet he is the picture of humility in human form. We think of the fearful God, the angry God, the God who is for me and against all others, or you might think that, that there's just no way God could ever accept you. You think that God hates you the way you are and is frustrated and despised with the choices that you made yesterday or today or last year. And so some of us hate him back. And because we don't want to face that, sometimes we will God out of our existence entirely. And what Luke is saying, that it's hard for us to hear, because we're 2,000 years later, but to the first century, Luke is saying, that is not who the king is. And that is not how his kingdom looks. This tells us something huge about God. And it tells us something about the qualities that God is looking for in people to reflect who he is. The kingdom of God is upside down in that manner as well. What or who gets to be in God's presence? Only the worthy? 
the wealthy, the extraordinary. I know many of you have done a resume before, right? When you, uh, when you write your resume, you emphasize all your strengths, right? Your education, your experience, the reasons why you are the best candidate for this job. What's, what's on their resume? Well, Zechariah, he says, well, on my resume, I'm going to put, we're old. We're very old. And often, I'm not sure that God will do what he says he's going to do. And then Mary, um, she's young, I'm poor, got any experience in motherhood? No. Have you ever been a queen? Nope. You know how to conduct yourself as royalty? No. So from the very beginning, there's this upside downness to God's kingdom. And the poor are elevated to a place of honor. And Jesus is a rabbi who spends time with sinners, all the wrong people. So that makes you ask, like, what, what is important to God? What does he look for in those of us who desire to be Jesus' followers? And I think the, the thing that they all have, as different as they all are, is they have a humble willingness to step into what God has for them. The angel says that Mary is highly favored. Why? Because she has a strong resume? No, but because she's humble and she's willing and she's available. You know, there are a lot of people in the world that have amazing resume, resumes that God will never choose to use because his kingdom is upside down. Mary's qualification is I'm the Lord's servant one of the commentators um, that I read for this uh, studying of Luke said that this is the great reversal of the gospel I love that you know in wrestling uh, reversal is um, a move that is scored and other than a pin or a takedown uh, it's one of the ways you can score the most points. And what happens is, you know, you, a reversal is when you quickly turn the tables, going from being on defense and under the control of someone else to reversing that, and now you're in control and you're on the offense. Um, with God, it's entirely the opposite. The goal isn't to get in a position of control. The goal is to intentionally place God in that position in your life. To give God control. And when that happens, our values flip. We, it's an upside down kingdom. And to that, I mean, like as we read who these people are that God chooses to be a part of this part of Jesus' story, um, they all seem so normal. I mean, Elizabeth, um, she says, the Lord has done this for me. Mary says, I'm the Lord's servant. And then even Zechariah, the most religiously trained of all, 
says, how can I be sure of this? How many times have I asked that question? How many times have you guys asked that question? You know, like you're, like, do I really, do I really believe what God is telling me? Do I really stand on the way of Jesus in this situation? Or do I need to like manipulate it or figure it out in a different way? How can I be sure of this? You know, it's interesting to me that a book or an account of Jesus' life that by the author is stated to reinforce the certainty of the story begins with a story about doubt. We talked about that a little bit last week. And from someone that you think would be the least likely to doubt. Someone involved in full-time ministry. A priest. So what does that tell us about God and when it comes to people? I think it tells us that doubt is not a disqualifier with God. Like Zechariah, people often ask, how can I be sure of this? You know, it's not a bad question. It's not a good or a bad question. Well, it could be a good question because it is a human question. And remember, it's the reason why Luke is writing his account so that Theophilus can be certain. So whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, I think this part of the story tells us that um, that doubt is normal. And it can be a real strength because it makes us think. And it makes us ask the questions that we should be asking as people of faith. And if you're asking questions, then that, that's not just normal. It's because you're actually thinking about your faith. And um, it's a reminder that we don't live in our own strength. I'm going to ask the band to come up. We don't live in our strength, in our own strength. We're not even expected to. Tomorrow, today, you might ask the question, how can I be sure of this God? And, you know, God might silence you for a little while. He might give you a little time to think, but he'll be faithful. I think we, th- we think that God cannot be for us if we have doubt. And Luke is showing us that that is not true. How can this be turns into I am your servant through God's faithfulness. Luke shows us that God is for us. He is for us regardless of our questions and that our doubt does not disqualify us. And if I could tell you anything, as a man who has a job like Zechariah's, I'm your spiritual leader. I know, it's kind of scary to think about. But I have doubts. I hope this is a safe place for me to admit that, but I think it likely is because 
you're a human being too, and you have doubts. And if I could say something to you, if I could point you to something, I would point you to this. If I could speak something over you, those of you who are facing challenges in your life, your, your faith has been disrupted, and you're, you're living things that you never thought you would live, or you're just thinking about taking the next step in, of obedience, or you're even like exploring faith. You're not even a Christian, and you're wondering, can I step into this kind of like in my squishy way and move forward as a pastor, as a friend? I have to tell you that doubt does not disqualify you, and I pray that you can see that through these stories that Luke tells us. Let's stand and let's worship together. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.